For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern-day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on Earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. Hello, beautiful people. You are here because you are curious about cannabis as a medicine. Maybe you're interested in how healthcare is evolving. Maybe you want to find out some good information to be able to give to your friends and family. Whatever it might be, you've come to the right place. And if you haven't listened already, go back and listen to episode one. And in it, I kind of describe all the different reasons why I've created this show and what you're going to be able to get out of it. Now, today, my very first interview is with Dr. Brian Donner. Dr. Donner is a physician from the state of Pennsylvania where he's been working in the cannabis industry since they first passed medical laws there about five years ago. He is an emergency room doctor who has firsthand seen the horrors of the opioid crisis, and he really has some interesting perspectives on how cannabis can help treat opioid addiction. We talked about a wide range of different topics, and I know that I learned a lot. I'm sure that you will too. And if you have anything to say, good or bad, I'd love to hear from you. Please leave a comment below. And until then, please enjoy this show with Dr. Brian Donner. All right, hello, beautiful people. I am Matthew Myro. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast, and our guest today is Dr. Brian Donner. Dr. Donner is a doctor of osteopathic medicine, specializing in emergency medicine, wound care, and hyperbaric medicine, which we're going to get into further. I'm really interested in that. Uh, he serves as the president and CEO of DNP Medical Group, as well as the medical co-director of the Wound and Hyperbaric Center, medical director of the Primary Stroke Center, and attending emergency physician at Armstrong County Memorial Hospital, which is just outside of Pittsburgh, PA. On the cannabis side of medicine, Dr. Donner is the chief medical officer and co-founder of Compassionate Certification Centers, which prides itself as the first U.S. medical cannabis healthcare system that specializes in cannabis medicine. And as an advocate for medical cannabis as well as a clinical researcher, Dr. Donner's interest and specialty in the subject has led him to be a panelist and speaker at many conferences and symposiums on the subject of medical cannabis. And he's also a member of the American Cannabis, well, the American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine, Americans for Safe Access, and the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. I hope I covered everything. Welcome, Dr. Donner. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Happy to be here, man. Thanks for the introduction. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, let's dive right in. I'd like to hear a bit of your story about how you actually got involved in cannabis medicine, being uh, the credentialed physician that you are. Yeah, absolutely. I think my story is probably a little bit different than some other doctors. So like you said, I, I was trained in emergency uh, a physician and board certified in emergency medicine. And I also did some fellowship training in wound care and hyperbaric medicine. And during that time, I became a real, um, really involved in clinical research as, a, as an investigator, actually. 
And probably late during my residency and early as an attending emergency physician, I had read a lot of the research of, uh, about medical cannabis, particularly coming out of Israel at that time. And about the same time, there was sort of the transition in our country, particularly out west in California uh, and in Colorado, where, where, where medical cannabis was really becoming more mainstream. So I, I got a flavor for it then and started to understand the science a little more. And then, to be honest, I had... Um, we had, I had two patients, two children who had um, something called Dravet syndrome, uh, basically a disorder that results in, in, in recurrent seizures, you know, 50, 75, 100 seizures a day. And we used to see these, these the moms with their kids in the ER two to three times a week, right? Um, and it was just uh, rather hopeless most of the time, you can imagine. And, and I remember around the same time, both of them start, stopped coming to the emergency department, and, and we sort of as a unit had thought the worst, right? Well, they're not coming because the kids, that, that, was, that was the end. Well, fortunately, like we couldn't have been more wrong. One day, a few months into this, the one mom showed up in the emergency department, and she, she looked great, and, and her kid looked better than he had looked. And, and I remember shutting the door, shutting the curtains and, you know, what are you doing? And, and she just sort of smiled and looked at me and she was getting on a plane and flying out to Colorado and, and, and obtaining some cannabis oil and treating her, 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 her child. And that was really sort of for me personally, that aha moment that put the science together with, with clinically seeing it with my eyes. Um, and really since that time, I, I sort of dove two feet into to the uh, uh, medical cannabis space more more than anything else, and I'm sure we'll get into talking about what I do. But that's how I got into medical cannabis and sort of what started me to where I am today. Yeah, and so and then clearly you've opened up your own clinic since then. So what were the steps between this aha moment and then getting to the point where you're a major advocate with your own clinic? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. There, there's a lot of steps. Um, you know, God, now I think it's been probably close to, to five years. Really, to, when you talk about opening our own clinics, one of the things that, that my partner and I saw in, in some of the other states where medical cannabis was coming up and, and running, and especially that had similar models where patients get certified for marijuana, a medical marijuana, they're not given prescriptions. And, and what we saw was that there was oftentimes physicians' offices that were certifying the patients for medical marijuana, but they weren't providing the type of ongoing support services they needed, just similar to traditional medicine. So out of that idea uh, was sort of how Compassionate Certification Centers was, was born. And really, we like to consider ourselves, I guess, a medical cannabis healthcare organization where not only are we able to evaluate patients and help them obtain their medical marijuana certifications when appropriate, but we can help explain the science to them. We can help outline treatment plans. We can provide ongoing support. We can get involved in product development and distribution. We can be involved in the research arm of it. So we really tried to treat the cannabis similar to traditional healthcare. Um, and we wanted our, our model to be repeatable. So if we had an office in Pittsburgh, it would be the same as our office in Philadelphia. You would get that same standard of care. So Really, that's the that's the idea that, that was born. I think we've been tremendously successful. You know, we have 10 different clinics across Pennsylvania now um, with about 15 different multi-specialty board certified physicians uh, and over 25,000 active medical marijuana patients. So 
Um, we just came out with a big research paper as well that you and I can talk about here. But uh, it's it, it's been quite a journey so far, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like your background as a DO as opposed to an MD brings this more holistic approach and the desire to really put the patient first as opposed to maybe just bringing them in and writing a little recommendation or certifying them and then say, okay, see you next year. Yeah, yeah look, I appreciate you saying that. I think it, when you look at, at medical cannabis uh, as a whole and sort of the, the, the paradigm shift in healthcare that it's helped to create, um, I, I think that fits into sort of an osteopathic mentality, right? Where where essentially we're taught that, that that structure governs function. So if you can get the body's structure uh, in its best working order, that it can function the best it can. And there's, there's a lot to that that's similar to medical cannabis and the endocannabinoid system and, and a balancing act with everything. So yeah, I think it fits in pretty well with sort of the osteopathic uh, tradition of thinking and training. Yeah, cool. So let's you mentioned that white paper. And so look, tell me a little more about what's going on with that. Yeah, so this is uh, this is something I'm I'm really excited about. Um, you know, Pennsylvania's had a tremendously robust medical cannabis program since they started, and it's I think we're up to uh, 250,000 patients. It's been just over a few years, so it's been really really impressive. Um, then Pennsylvania actually built a, a research component into their. Um, regulations called Chapter 20, but there had been nothing done yet, and it had been uh, two years. So, um, uh, Compassionate Certification Centers and our, our clinical research partner, Affinity Bio Partners, we decided to team up and, and do a patient-based, uh, basically a retrospective data analysis. So, we reached out to all, all of our um, CCC patients um, across the state. We had about 2,500 patient respondents, and we were able to get uh, data on almost 50 different uh, uh, question points, everything from medication availability to uh, effectiveness to side effects to interactions at the dispensaries. Um, and really, it was to me, I loved it because it was from the patient perspective, right? So it was a patient perspective of the medical cannabis program over the, the first two years. And some of the data points that, that we obtained were, were, were fantastic. Um, they, they surprised us, but I think it also provides a baseline for us to be able to move this forward in, in the future. And we were able to show that, that look, we just didn't cost a lot of money. We did it ourselves with our own resources. Um, and, and oftentimes these things, that's how they need to be done. So. Um, we were the first people in Pennsylvania to get something this, like this out. We're, we're really, really proud of it. Um, and really what it's meant to do is serve as a platform for more research moving forward to help make our state programs better and to help patients get better care. So um, it's, uh, it's available out there on our website. It's completely free for everybody. Um, it's not meant to throw stones or give a pat on the back. It's just to say, here's where we are and here's how we can make things better. Yeah, that's great. And so other physicians around the state that aren't part of your system, they're able to check in and actually gain some knowledge from this too then. Absolutely. Uh, not only physicians, but I think other researchers, patients, um, academic institutions, really anybody who's going to be involved in medical cannabis, because this, this is from the patient's perspective, right? And it can also show people, hey, look, this is what we can do when we, when we put our resources together. Um, so, so yeah, and, and we've been trying to really put it out there for everybody to see as much as we can. We've had a tremendous response from folks so far. So, really. Incredible. It's great. Good work. Thank you. Thank yeah. 
So speaking of the patients, and it's kind of new, you're still on the newer side of things in Pennsylvania, just been a few years where you've had the laws there. What was it like first trying to help these patients out? I imagine there's a lot of hit or miss kind of diagnoses, not diagnoses, but um, you can't say prescription, but right. uh, suggestions and things like that. Like how, how has the process been in discovering the most optimal way to treat the patient? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a great question. And it's been, it's been sort of difficult on multiple different angles, right? I think first, when you start, there's not that many physicians around who are that involved or, or really dive that deep into medical cannabis and understand it. So I think that was a challenge uh, at first. Then I think also when you get into it with a new state, like we had um, uh, product availability and supply, right? So when we can know what might be the best for the patient, but is that available, the appropriate cannabinoid ratio, the right route of administration, and is that going to be available on a consistent basis? So that, you know, that's been uh, some of the difficulty. I think also in a state like Pennsylvania, as well as we've done, our program has some flaws to it, right? So for example, in, in Pennsylvania, there's, there's really minimal to no communication between the physician's offices and the dispensaries. And this becomes a problem with, uh, as a physician, understanding what medications my patients are taking, how they're going to be effective, um, documenting and following adverse effects and everything. So, so although everybody, uh, you know, we're pretty happy with how things are, there's still those, those areas that, that we need to fix in order, again, just based off of patient care more than anything. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw that you offer, it's an endocannabinoid DNA test. That's something I'd never heard of before. I'm really curious. Yeah, and this is really, I'm glad you asked. This is a, a new technology, and I think it's still, as time goes on, is going to become more and more specific. But really, what uh, when you look at this, what it's it's taking genetic pro, uh, a profile, and, and oftentimes it's looking at the uh, your metabolic capabilities in processing, right? So we know that that cannabinoids and cannabis-based medicine that they're processed through certain enzymatic pathways, right? Based off of our genetics, certain people may be higher producers of an enzyme, lower producers of an enzyme. So that can affect um, uh, how these uh, medications, cannabis included, are processed. When you put that in conjunction with other medications that are people are taking that go through similar enzymatic pathways, this can become a big deal, right? Um, so when we say genetic uh, profiling for cannabis, I think that's what that's what we're, we're we're talking about more than anything. And it's it's not a be all end all right now, but it's absolutely another tool that providers can use to help guide them, and in particular in high risk populations. Gotcha. So you're not specifically finding the amount of CB1, CB2 receptors located inside of the endocannabinoid system, just more of a guideline. Correct. Yeah. And it's not, we're not talking about receptors. We're not talking about, we're talking about how, how cannabis is metabolically processed when it's consumed in the body and how it's broken down from an enzymatic standpoint and then used for the body physiologically. And, and that information based off of genetics, we can at least understand a little right? And that little bit may be enough to, to, to make that, that patient's treatment plan better. But this isn't the, the gospel or written in stone at this point. It's relatively new technology. And as time goes on, we'll, we'll figure it out how to tweak it even more specifically. 
Um, but I wish, I wish we could measure cannabinoid receptors and <laughs> different cannabinoid levels. So someday we will. Someday. someday. I know it's, it's crazy how nascent this industry is. And yeah, that's, the, that's part of the, that's part of the, uh, the interesting thing to, to people like me who are clinicians and researchers is that you can, you can have potentially have a real big impact on how the, the future is laid out, right? Because we're really, we've really just scratched the surface of this. And, and as we get 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, there's just going to be some unbelievably amazing things that, that come out of cannabis-based medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And so I understand that you're also working to educate physicians because as a patient in California for about 15 years, they're was a dearth of information let's just say and the physician didn't seem to care enough as much as i would have appreciated and it i think it's important that these physicians actually get to know things because i mean in your medical training there's almost no information if any at all around the endocannabinoid system itself so what what role are you taking in pennsylvania for educating these doctors yeah absolutely and and i think you hit the nail on the head right as as, as physicians, pharmacists, whether it's in medical school, residency, fellowship, we get zero training on, on the endocannabinoid system. And, and this is a biochemical system that works very similar to the other things we're taught. Norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, right? They're very similar. Um, so, And I think that's largely the reason that, that many physicians are so standoffish or unwilling to get involved because they just don't know. And, and doctors don't like to talk about stuff they don't know about, right? Um, so and we've seen that. Even myself, most of the education I've had has been all, all self-learning, right? Picking up books, going to seminars, reading and reading. So um, I, I think that that explains part of the reason why. Now, then it gets to what do we do about this, right? And, and, and honestly, part of educating physicians is just showing that, hey, you can put yourself out there. You can believe in this type of medicine that, that, and you can, you can have another tool in your toolbox for your patient, right? So just showing doctors that it's okay to do this, right? And that it's okay to have your patients use medical marijuana um, is one way to do it. Educating doctors about the endocannabinoid system. Most people, once, once they, they hear about science that they can grasp and they've already heard about previously, um, it makes it makes a big big difference. Um, we focus a lot on educating our the doctors at CCC when they come in in a specific fashion, right? So that whenever they practice and they treat their patients, it's done so in a, in a consistent manner that we're all on the same page. Um, but yeah, right now the unfortunate thing is there's really no true true big leaders in that space. There's no American Medical Association, American Osteopathic Association. Now, and there's some organizations out there forming. Um, uh, uh, that that are trying to to be leaders in that space, and I think it's probably going to come around sooner rather than later, and that will make a big difference for physicians nationally. Yeah, of course. And so I know um, part of Affinity BioPartners, who you worked with on the white paper, the Cannabot, and it's a really cool technology. I talked to Christina, and what are you going to be able to incorporate that into your practice as well? Yeah, I absolutely hope to at some point. You know, when you talk about Cannabot, it's really 
to me, an, an interesting piece of technology, uh, and particularly uh, what Christina was able to build because it incorporates clinical research and that data collection and using artificial intelligence to ultimately help the patient, right? So where the equivalent of, hey, you ask Alexa, you ask Siri, well, now you can do that with, uh, with cannabis-based questions, right? And the answers the patients would get in response would be based off of science and data, right? And not just sort of pulled from the sky. So I, I think having access to that type of information for patients in real time is, is tremendously powerful. Um, so it's absolutely something that, that, that we hope to incorporate into our practice and with our patients. You know, as, as is the cannabis space, things are progressing a million miles an hour. So it's often hard to incorporate all these changes at once without overwhelming people. Of course. But, but course. I, I'm a huge, huge fan of Canada, and I, I think it's going to have a big, big place in, in, in patient care and patient access to education and tools and, and better treatment plans. Right, because I know as the physician, you are limited in what you're actually able to say and suggest and recommend. And is it is the Canabot, the technology, does that create a buffer for you that will be able to educate the patient maybe in things that you're not specifically allowed to tell them? Sure. Uh, you know, and I would say less so that, but you're absolutely right. You know, depending on who you ask, it's a really gray area what doctors are allowed to say. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in that, that I'm, I'm very forthcoming with my patients, tell them, you know, what I think they should take, what the best medicine is, how, how much, how often, and I don't get too concerned about that. I know other doctors who feel differently. I think the biggest thing for Canabot, in my opinion, is that, is that, the patients are going to be able to have real-time access to, to meaningful answers that they otherwise wouldn't have, right? And this will increase safety. It will increase efficacy. Um, it will increase product reliability. And then not only that, but it's able to take that data and then assimilate that and see maybe we're real-time problems. Hey, we're, we're, patients are having issues with problem A, B, C, or D, and then that's able to get back to clinicians like myself, researchers like Christina, who can then take that information and, and, and do better with it, right? So I think those are the two big, big points about in Canabot, more so than Canabot's going to say, hey, this is what you should take right now and this much. It's more really a tool and a guide and an educational um, uh, piece that otherwise patients wouldn't have in a real-time setting. Right, absolutely. Cool. And what else does your, your clinic do for educating the patients? So good for, for patient education. There's there's so many things we do. Um, but all patients who come and see us, there's um, basic materials that they get that are going to explain the endocannabinoid system. They explain cannabinoid medicine, different routes of administration, durations of act, um, uh, onsets of duration. So all these different things. This that's one area. We have online, whether it's all of our media uh, reference materials um, that educates patients. We actually do clinical research ourselves, like I told you, whether it's the white paper or other clinical trials, so patients will be enrolled in those. Um, we have our nursing staff, our physicians that our patients reach out to after their appointments with questions. We do educational events in the community. Um, we do certification events with veterans. So we really try to uh, mix so many things in there to help educate the patients and, and touch each group. Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, Matt, every day I'm amazed sometimes how little people know about cannabis and cannabis medicine, you know. I was out to dinner the other night with some friends and they saw one of their, uh, an acquaintance there who 
ends up, he has horrible anxiety, uh, you know, cannabis would be great for him. He says, yeah, my doctor didn't think that'd be right for me. And he just gave up when, when in fact would have been a perfect medicine for him. And after a two minute conversation, he and I had, he'll probably be a patient next week. So. Wow. Incredible. So changing gears a little bit, I want to dive into some of the hyperbaric medicine that you're doing. And I know it's excellent for wounds and things like that, but I have a dear friend out in California who's a hyperbaric oxygen therapy specialist. And he has recently also gotten into the cannabis space. Actually, his new product, it's called Blue Canatine. It just dropped yesterday, but it's a mix of caffeine, blue methylene, uh, nicotine, and CBD. And so it's, a, it's billed as a nootropic which is really cool. But anyway, I digress. Um, he has been working specifically with concussions and things like that with CBD and with the hyperbaric treatments. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. I, I, I would love to. So as fate may have it, my partner, Dr. Patel and I are run the directors at um, the concussion clinic at one of our community hospitals here. And so I'm a big, big believer in hyperbaric medicine. Um, you know, when you look at sort of what hyperbaric medicine does, it can be very similar to what some of the uh, cannabis medicine does, right? Um, it can uh, result in a, be a potent anti-inflammatory. It can help new blood vessels grow. Um, uh, um, it can help be an antimicrobial. There's really just so many uh, factors that hyperbaric uh, medicine does that's similar to cannabis-based medicine. One of the very interesting things to me, more so than anything else, and particularly when you're talking about traumatic brain injury and concussion, is that we know in animal models, particularly, that, that, that CBD has been shown to be neuroprotective and neuroregenerative. We have seen similar type um, uh, properties with regard to hyperbaric medicine, particularly with regard to angiogenesis and the form and formation of new blood vessels and growth, right? Um, to potentially put these two type of things together in a treatment to me is, is something very, very appealing. So and theoretically, when you think about this with traumatic brain injury, if you, you just sort of follow down the yellow brick road here. So if you can, if you have two components that, that can basically reverse that injury, that you can blunt the inflammatory process and stop that in its tracks, and you can have something that's neuroprotective at the same time. So you take the hyperbaric medicine, and then you take the cannabinoid medicine, you put that in, and theoretically, you can eliminate traumatic brain injury in its pathophysiology, right? right. So I, it's it's a very, very, very appealing thing. Now it's complicated too, right? Getting somebody in the hyperbaric chamber um, with 100% oxygen in the hospital grade chamber within 24 to 48 hours of injury. Um, but complicated doesn't mean it's not doable. So, um, I, you know, that's probably a complicated way of diving into your uh, your question, but I'm a, I'm a big, big believer. I think hyperbaric medicine is another thing that we've only scratched the surface. And I think there's a, a potential tremendous synergy between hyperbaric medicine and cannabis. Yeah, I've been reading incredible stories with hyperbaric and a ketogenic diet having incredible effects with cancer patients. And the, I mean, it seems like it's an amazing medicine. Have you actually had a chance to put the two together, put the cannabis and the hyperbaric treatments together yet? A, a little bit, I would say I have, and when I, but when I've done it, it's been sort of at my own clinical guidance. 
um, and more on like a case by case basis, right? So I actually, in our in our private practice, we have a, two hospital grade chambers that we're going to be getting up and running now in, in more of a private office setting, which will give us much more, much more leeway. We have some research protocols actually designed now, particularly with regard to uh, um, uh, hyperbaric and traumatic brain injury, and we can easily incorporate cannabis-based medicine into that. Um, we had participated in some research down at one of the uh, big academic and athletic institutions in one of the Carolinas and, and got about halfway through a, a traumatic brain injury and, and hyperbaric study there, which the results were fantastic. So um, um, as the days go by where I'm getting into it more and more, um, like I said, it just requires a lot of resources, right? Uh, you know, a hyperbaric chamber, getting your hands on one of those is it's a lot of money getting the oxygen to it uh, insurance is very similar to like cannabis-based medicine there's a there's a very very minimal things that insurance will pay for people to get into the hyperbaric chamber right um and a lot of the things we think it'll work for are the things that the insurance won't pay for people to get into so uh, but again when you use research as a tool you can make that accessible to more patients right so that's what that's what i i hope to do Absolutely. Yeah, that's what, so the Edge of Cannabis Medicine is the show. We're all about the cutting edge of medicine. And this sounds like you're in two areas that are really launching right now. It's very cool. Yeah, I, I love it. It's really neat how they come together. I, I never, you know, whether it's wound care, hyperbaric or, or cannabis, you never, we, I, when I started off, I never would have seen the, the mesh between them. But boy, they're all really coming together in a very interesting fashion. Yeah, and especially for TBI, it's I mean, that's also a new discovery, basically, where it's like, okay, you could sneeze hard and end up damaging your brain. And with the soldiers coming back, with everything, the scandals with the NFL, I shouldn't even say that. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it mean, it, it's, it's, a for, big, it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal, right? Deal. It's, yeah. it's a hot, a hot topic that, that, that we're talking about. And the other thing that when you look at this, just from being a provider who treats concussions all the time, you know, you come to the emergency department and you see me and you have a fever and you have a cough and I do an x-ray and you have pneumonia. Here's your antibiotics, seven, 10 days later, you're, you're, you're better, right? Concussion and TBI doesn't work like that. There is no specific treatment that's going to cure it, right? That's going to get it. So what we try to do is we try to lessen the impact and the symptoms and we try to make it go away more quickly. But it's a hard thing to do, and our resources are oftentimes limited. So anytime you have potential treatments like this that are, that are non-toxic and, and, and can be sort of preventative and therapeutic at the same time, it's a tremendously uh, interesting thing, to, at least to guys like me, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know uh, a Dr. Mark Gordon out on the West Coast. He works a lot with TBI. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. but yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and so a lot of work with you know high omega three diets and hormone balancing and finding some success there. But like you said, it's we don't really know how to treat it. People are finding ways that are working, but there isn't a single guide that's going to do it. That's right. That's absolutely correct, and it makes treatments hard, right? Even whenever you know somebody goes and sees a different clinician, they might have two different complete different treatment plans and that makes it sometimes confusing for patients right uh, so so yeah it's 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 tough but it's very very encouraging uh, you know to me it's these are hyperbaric and cannabis based medicine are two 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 therapies for TBI concussion that that have 
great potential. And I would be awfully surprised if you don't see a lot more of those in the future. Yeah, coming together. So just side note, I noticed you switch between using marijuana and cannabis in, yeah, yeah. in vernacular. And you know, some people are actively against using the word marijuana ever, that it's a racist term and things like that. And uh, where do you stand in that? Yeah, I honestly, at this point, it's funny you say that. I don't even pay attention to what I do now. There's oftentimes in the state, they've been very particular about not using cannabis, calling it marijuana instead. And I've seen the other side of it too. Um, I honestly, Matt, it makes no difference to me personally. You're talking about, you're talking about cannabinoid-based medicine. Really, if you want to get technical, that's what you're talking about, right? Um, more so than the plant, because this isn't just about the marijuana plant, right? So cannabinoids are produced in different plants, lichens, even you know, things like black pepper. Um, so, so technically, you know, when you call it medical marijuana in a state like Pennsylvania, it's true. The medicine's produced from, from marijuana, right? But I think on a more global, big scale level, uh, you know, can, cannabinoid-based medicine is is probably more appropriate, but um, I'm, I'm, that's the last thing I'm, I'm going to start hearing. Seriously, seriously. It's getting so confusing, too. I've seen so many people, they're like, oh, well, this is hemp, and this is marijuana, and, and trying to distinguish between what has higher levels of THC and what has the 0.03% that you're allowed to have for hemp medicines, and I, don't know, I feel like it's getting crazy right now. It's 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 so cr difficult to understand and so confusing. And I mean, this is take it from a guy who I've been intimately involved with this for the last five years, particularly in our country and Canada. And it is it, it is difficult to understand and sometimes gray even at best, right? So difference between federal laws, state laws, different state laws, uh, you know, uh, and then they and the regulations change all the time, and they're going to again. Right, sooner rather than later. Um, but we need that, and we need we need change, particularly on a federal federal level. Right, um, the the descheduling, or at least the decreasing the, the, the schedule, because where it is now just isn't reality. Right, it's not 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 how things should move on. So we need that regulatory change to to sort of help guide help guide medical cannabis on its way and its integration into modern medicine. Absolutely. Yeah. To think that cocaine is schedule two. So it's more accessible research wise than cannabis. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, they put cannabis in uh, with things like crack cocaine and PCP, but then on the same token, they approve a drug like Epidiolex that's, that's completely cannabis based. So, you know, it's, it's the old adage, it's standing with one leg on each side of the fence. Right. So, but it'll change. Eventually it'll change and um, we'll all be happy when it does. Yeah. And so where do you stand on the synergy conversation? And some people call it the entourage effect or, or the ensemble effect, however you want to describe it. But where do you stand on it? And specifically with this rage around CBD, do you think that the isolate or is full spectrum more beneficial? What do you think? Yeah, this is a good, this is a great question too. And I love how you, you said entourage and the ensemble effect that, you know, both of you and I know Dr. Block and yeah. I, I think he's the, he's the classic for calling that the ensemble effect. And, you know, if any, for anybody listening who doesn't understand it, really what we're talking about is, is the whole plant, all the cannabinoids, the terpenes, everything working together in harmony. 
clarity, right? Uh, um, and synchronicity more than anything else. Dr. Block uh, likes to say that it's more of an ensemble because the entourage refers to THC being the leader when that's not really true, right? So I'll tell you this, I, I, in my opinion, I think that right now the we, we see better clinical results with the, the ensemble effect or the that harmonious effect because it's somewhat of a shotgun approach, right? Well, that we don't really know specifically what's going to help each patient, right? We don't know that at all. So if you give somebody really a broad spectrum-based uh, uh, cannabis preparation, the likelihood of success is greater, right? Versus something that's just narrow, narrow-minded into there. However, with that said, I, I think in the future, as we see this really integrated into medicine, it's going to be much more cannabinoid-directed therapy, right? Really much more specific based off of maybe different disease processes, symptomatologies, and or endocannabinoid imbalances, right? So I guess I believe I, I believe in both, right? I believe where we are now, I'm, I'm more of an ensemble effect type guy. I think that's uh, it's important because when you start pulling the components out separately, you may lose some of that synchronicity. However, I think as we get more educated and we understand science a little better in the future, I think these directed therapies and these specific therapies are going to be the wave of the future. So. Yeah, that really excites me. I was listening to an expert on fish oil and talking about these wild manufacturing plants in Germany that are extracting the oil and then taking all the EPA goes here and all the DHA goes here and all the DPA goes here and because they know that each one of those has a different effect and a, a different aid for the body, they can start to pick and choose and put them together in different ways. And I know what, there's 103 or 114 or somewhere in between there, depending on who you talk to, different cannabinoids in the plant. And I'm really excited about the idea of being able to study each and every one of them to know what their effects are and to create these I don't know, designer medications for people that specifically pinpoint what they've got going on. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and not only the cannabinoids, the terpenes, um, all these things. And, you know, I was just in a lab the other day and, 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 and we have the technology now where we can isolate those, those different cannabinoids and those terpenes, and then we can reconstitute them in whatever formulations, ratios we want. And the beautiful thing about that is these are still produced by nature, right? We're just pulling apart the, those little pieces and then putting that same back together again. So, so it's not synthetic. Right. This isn't this isn't man made sort of. It's just it's just reconstituted by man and based off of science. So, yeah. So it's, it's great. We have that technology now. What we really need to figure out is the other side of it. Right. So that, OK, we can separate all this stuff and we can do it. But what is that? What do these people need? Right. If for autism, for PTSD, for whatever this is, that's we, we got to catch up on that end of the spectrum, too. And that's whenever things are going to get really cool. Right, because you yeah. can that that goal or symptom directed therapy based off of objective findings. Or, yeah, yeah, which is great. Absolutely. What about administration? Do you have a preferred administration? Do you notice one has more efficacy over another? Yep, that's another great question. I think it all depends on your disease process and what symptoms you're trying you're trying to treat. And the reason I say this is because of you know we we all we know that say 
just inhaled versus oral. Let's, let's, let's keep it easy. Inhaled cannabis, it has a rapid onset of action, so it works quickly. But we know it doesn't last that long, you know, maybe an hour to two hours versus we take an oral cannabis preparation, an oil, a tincture, a capsule. It might have a delayed onset, right? It might take up to an hour, hour and a half to, to really take effect. But it might last much longer, six to eight hours. So what's my goal with my symptoms, right? If I'm have somebody who's really just going to be to treat muscle spasm or say panic attacks, then maybe something like an inhaled version is more appropriate because they can use it in a PRN as needed fashion. It works quickly, then it's going to go away quickly. Versus somebody um, with more uh, long-term systemic illness such as autism, seizures, that they need to have a, a really consistent cannabinoid profile or plasma level, they may need to be on a scheduled oral preparation every six to eight hours, right? Or I have people mixing match. So it really depends on the on the individual. This is one of the things I love about cannabis medicine, right? Is that it's not a it's not a shotgun approach. I don't every person it's not the same. It's based off the individual, what's their symptoms and what are their goals of therapy. And then we design the treatment plan out of that. Not what was good for Joe and Sally and Bobby and Susan, right? What's going to be good for them. So and I I love that. I find it super appealing and patients usually love it too. Yeah, that's a, I really have a lot of respect for you on that note because a lot of doctors wouldn't do that. A lot of doctors are looking for that magic pill and say, okay, here's the prescription. It works. This is what it does. Go for it. But the individualized approach, I think, is really the future of medicine. Yeah, it is. And cannabis is one of these things where it's really... It's really interesting because rather than me as the physician tell you as the patient what to do, it's more that, hey, listen, let me help. I'm going to explain this to you. I'm going to educate you. I'm going to be your guide. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you a starting point. And then we'll work together to get you where. But it really empowers the patient, right, uh, to, to, to do this and to work, use what works for them. And, and because, you know, of, of the apparent safety profile of cannabis, we're able to do this more comfortably than we could with traditional pharmaceuticals, right? Um, um, so, and it's, it's a very powerful thing for the patient. When, when they're involved in treating themselves, right, it's, uh, they tend to get better more quickly and they really tend to believe in those treatments yeah, absolutely. I, I come from the biohacking community. So, you know, we, we love that. We love yep. that digging around and finding some random person in Oklahoma who figured something out that's great for them. It's like, okay, cool. Maybe I'll try that too. It's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, so speaking of pain, I know that there's been some correlation between the endocannabinoid system and our and pain and how we experience pain, and which goes directly to the opioid crisis, and which is something I know that you're involved in there. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And probably better, I think I'm going to speak to it more on like a macro level than getting down into the nitty gritty science with how cannabis helps with pain. But, but I, I, what I've seen clinically, so first of all, I've been intimately involved with the opiate crisis epidemic as, as an ER physician, right? Um, that, that was in my face every day, all the time. And, I, you know, I've, I, I've, I've seen more death than I, than I care to talk about. Um, also, on the other end, I've been able to firsthand see how cannabis can serve as, as not only an alternative to to treat people with chronic pain, but as a as a tool to help get patients off of opiates, right? Uh, and to help not only treat the, the acute withdrawal, but also the long-term addiction process that's going in. So, uh, and, and then 
Compound on top of that, we don't have a solution for the open epidemic in our country. It's out of control, and, and there's really nothing definitive going on. We're finally starting to get a little bit of a handle on it just because people are prescribing way, way less, right? But we all these people now know all these people with these, 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 whether it's pain syndromes, chronic pain syndromes, or that they're 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 inadvertently addicted to opiates and or narcotics. A lot of them are left high and dry, and, and, and cannabis is really, in my opinion, stepping up to help sort of save the day uh, with this. And we've seen this in our own two eyes. Pennsylvania, I think it's so wonderful. They were one of the first states that they approved opiate addiction or substitution therapy as one of the qualifying conditions for medical marijuana. So patients can come see us now to get certified for medical marijuana to help get them off of their opiates. Right, which is uh, again, we've seen it be tremendously successful. So, when you have something like cannabis that can help not only treat chronic pain but help lessen and reduce the, the acute and, and, and long term withdrawal, it's it's really an ideal treatment. So, again, another thing, super super exciting and tremendous potential out there. And I, again, I've seen this with my own two eyes and so many of my patients that that I'm a hundred percent a believer. Yeah. I mean, what do you say to the people that say, oh, you're just trading one high for another? Yeah, you're not. It's completely different. It's, you're working on two different biochemical systems within the body. They're completely different, right? Is there interaction between the two? Absolutely. But there is between all of these systems, right? But they're, they're different. They're, it's like looking at an apple and an orange, not two oranges. It's They're, they're completely different, right? So, uh, and when you look at it, even just pick, pick receptors, for example, right? Perfect example. When you take opiates, you, you have a receptor upregulation. Your body makes more of these receptors. So my analogy, it's like Pac-Man, right? Pac-Man is the receptor and the opiates are, are what Pac-Man's eating and Pac-Man wants to get fed. So you take 10 milligrams of oxycodone for one month, uh, your receptors by the end of that month are, are X, X number higher than what they were before, right? That's what withdrawal is when these receptors get unhappy and they don't get fed. Cannabis works completely different. You know, human beings and all mammals were born into this into this world with a finite number of cannabis receptors. Whether we use marijuana every single day or never in our entire life, we leave this planet with that same amount of cannabis, cannabis receptors. Right. So, so they're they're completely different mechanisms. So I don't think that argument gets past first base in my opinion. Oh, really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's another kind of tangent. I'm wondering if you have any colleagues in some of the states where they've passed recreational laws and they started with medical and then moved into recreational. And if you have any physician colleagues to, to talk about what their experience has been trying to help their patients after the state has turned recreational. I do. You know, that's a great question. And honestly, I don't have probably enough close contacts and friends in those states. Um, you know, I'll tell you the, the, the one doctor that I know fairly well in California. Um, he's, he's thought it had an impact. I think California's view of cannabis is very unique in the way they have been and the way things have progressed. So it's, but it's such a massive market that, that, that you've got to really take that into account. I don't look to California personally for my, as a, as a medical go-to, uh, you know, I thought Colorado's uh, sort of the way they made their, their program where they you sort of used the, the recreational program to help subsidize the medical program a little bit without, you know, for lack of a better term. Um, 
I think that's shown more promise than anything. I think one of the things that I always get worried about, and particularly in, in a place like Pennsylvania, is patient access, right? So, so number one, you, you know, in Pennsylvania right now, we have 250,000 medical cannabis patients. We have a population of about 12 and a half million, right? What happens overnight whenever medical cannabis is approved or cannabis is approved on a recreational level or adult use level? That, that who's going to lose out and that product availability to patients is just not there anymore. And that can be catastrophic in my opinion, right? Yeah. Um, um, I also know that, that patients need guidance and they need clinical guidance and they shouldn't just be, hey, every patient's just going to treat themselves because it doesn't work. I've seen it with my own two eyes. So that makes me, that makes me nervous, you know? So um, I'm a big, big medical cannabis guy. I try to stay out of the recreational uh, part of it, but I know this too. When you look at recreational marijuana use, in my opinion, personally, it's about THC, right? Because it involves uh, THC and, and some level of impairment and or intoxication, even if a little bit. Um, when you look about everything else in, in, in the marijuana plant or in cannabis that, that theoretically doesn't have any intoxicating or recreational use to it, it's all therapeutic and or medicinal, right? So when, when you take a plant that has all these components that are overwhelmingly therapeutic and, and medicinal, but and the small part of it is really recreational, it, 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 I worry less as a doctor because I know long-term what the importance is going to be based out of that, right? That doesn't mean that that recreational isn't going to be a big industry, and not at all. But I, I think the, the, the medicine and the recreation are going to have a definitive split at some point, and that's a good thing. Right. Yeah, I think it's a really good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So, and I also, is it still the case in Pennsylvania where you can't purchase smoked, flower, smokable flour for the patients? So, no, you can actually, it's, it, it's, it's funny. You can purchase flour and it can be vaporized. You are just not allowed to smoke it. So, there can't be any combustion with fire. Right. So you could go buy flour and put it in a vaporizer. You cannot go buy flour and put it, uh, you know, roll a joint or put it in a, a pipe or something like that. Right. So I'm sure that they have the uh, authorities and manpower to stop everybody from doing that, too. <laughs> you said it. Yeah. <laughs> State of Pennsylvania has that under control, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, it's look, most. Uh, the, the, the sad truth is even most law enforcement, most, most people don't understand these laws, right? And it's not their fault. They haven't been adequately educated and taught, but, but there's a lot of confusion. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, the other thing, it's hard. These state medical marijuana departments, you know, these aren't, these aren't staffed by hundreds of people. You know, you're talking about a state, uh, maybe there's 10 people. And then it's, it's, it's a big, big responsibility um, uh, for these folks to do. And they have a lot on their plate, you know. So honestly, in Pennsylvania, I, I tip my hat to what's been done so far. I'm, I'm amazed in two years how they have things. I think they've done a tremendous job. I'm a little bit biased, obviously, but, uh, uh, you know, I tip my hat to them. Yeah, absolutely. I know the farm bill has made things really hard on them. I have a buddy who has a pre-roll hemp flower company and you know, these it smells like weed, it tastes like weed, it, it's beautiful, grows the same way, but it, it doesn't have any THC in it at all. And it's, it's a nightmare 
<laughs> for the officers right. to figure out what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a, it gets, I, I was just, uh, had one of my, uh, good friends who's a lawyer reach out, you know, Pen- it's interesting, you know, Pennsylvania is what we call it zero tolerance state, right? Meaning that uh, if they do a blood test on you, if there's any THC in your blood or, or I can't remember what the level, you, you know, you get a, you get a DUI now that, that may not, you, you absolutely may not have been intoxicated, uh, you know, but from a cannabis standpoint at that time. So what happens? How does this, uh, you know how does this play out all of these sort of and that's just one small example right maybe it's medical marijuana in the workplace or in the school all these things are, are going to be playing out and there's going to be landmark cases in different states and from a federal level too so we're, we're living in an amazing time you know this is something that happens once in, in history and you know in a country like ours so it's uh, it's pretty special and pretty neat and i, I tell everybody make sure you you hold on you know, and you, you put in your two cents because now is the time. Don't 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 sit on your hands and wait. Yeah, absolutely. And so, being that the show is about medical cannabis, I'm not as interested in the recreational aspects of things. And I'm really hoping that I I know that people are still going to want to do it, and they're still going to want to pass their laws in their states and things like that. But I like your model, where it seems like there will be a divergent track for both, and that they'll be able to grow together, and the medical aspect will continue to grow. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think there's it's, it's without question, and we'll look back, and, and like I said, 5, 10, 15, 20 years of a conversation like this, when, you know, cannabis-based medicine is going to be incorporated into what we call modern medicine or healthcare without question, right? Just like recreational marijuana will probably be, be incorporated into, into societal history, right? Just like anything else. The impact of that one is going to have on lives versus the other is, is really where you, you draw that line, right? Um, cannabis is, has the potential to, to save lives and, 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 and end a lot of suffering and without question. And that's when you have something like that, it doesn't just go away, right? And it'll continue to, 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 to be cultivated, for lack of a better term, into something bigger and better. So, yeah, I, I think there's absolutely going to be that wide right? And again, it's, my stance is sort of like yours. I, I don't, it's not that I'm saying I'm a for, or I'm for or against recreational. That's not it. I just focus on on the medicine aspect. And my, my I, you know, I beg the folks that, hey, look, when you're considering recreational, please always keep the patients in mind as well, right? Because that should always trump, that should, medicine should always trump recreation when it comes to that. So if we, if we keep that in the forefront of our mind, I think we'll be, I think we'll be good. That's great. Uh, I'm great. really glad that you're a spokesman for that because you know what you're talking about, Dr. Donner, that's for sure. <laughs> I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks. All right, well, I've got one last question for you. Please. And it is that if you could see one change within the medical cannabis industry, what would that be? Yeah. Just one. Yep. Uh, and I'm going to keep this real big. It would be the federal federal legislative changes, right? Because that opens the door for everything. And this is as, as simple of going from schedule one to schedule two, because then it, it provides uh, national guidelines. You're allowed to do to let national research. It lets the banks become involved, the insurance companies. I, I really think and there's there's a flow of support and, and, and money that comes into it that really drives this, right? And and we're going to hit a point where unless there's real federal legislation, 
the states can only get so far because they're separated, right? Even if we want to be together, we're separate. So if I had one thing on my wish list, it would be that federal legislation and the change of schedule. That's the big one. Yep. That's the big one. That's a common answer here. <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, doctor, and, and all your information. This has really been a pleasure and I've learned a lot. And uh, hopefully all of our listeners are learning a lot as well. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, man. As always, you know how to track me down if I can be of assistance. Thank you so much for listening. I am incredibly grateful for folks like you. They're giving me the opportunity to share all this information about medical cannabis. It's critical information that more people need to know about. And thank you for being one of those important people spreading the good word. If you hadn't had a chance yet, subscribe to the show so you can get every single episode week after week right to your box and take a moment if you will to please go over to stitcher or to apple and give us a rating let us know what you think about the show if you want any other guests on here if there's something i can be doing better please please let me know until next time my friends stay strong stay healthy and for now you gotta stay put This Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast is copyright EM2P2 Inc. 2020. All rights reserved. Podcast use and availability is governed by terms and disclaimers available at edgeofcannabismedicine.com forward slash terms. I'm your host, Matthew Myro, and thank you for listening.